You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Journey with me now to southeastern Pennsylvania, the area around present-day York and Lancaster, for this topic voted on by supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where you can get swag and bonus content, and you totally should. And I couldn't think of an intro this week, so my name's Moxie, and this is Your Brain on Facts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the 1600s, most of the people living in that region were the Native Americans, the Algonquin Lenape, the Susquehannock, and others. By 1700 or so, all that changed as the Dutch and English tried to lay claim to the land on either side of the Delaware River. A century after that, settlers from Europe poured into the area and claimed even more land. Many of these new arrivals were German-speaking, and they brought with them a number of different religious traditions. Although many of them were staunch Lutherans and Protestants, there were also Amish, Mennonite, and Anabaptist. They venerated the saints of the Roman Catholic Church and used prayers and liturgical blessings for everyday activities. When it came to matters of healing, they often included consecrated objects and invocations in tandem with herbal remedies. Sacred symbols were invoked for protection of the family, but more on all that stuff later. These Germans in Pennsylvania became known as the Pennsylvania Dutch. They weren't Dutch, as the previous sentence should have indicated, so why the name? The most common explanation is that Dutch was a corruption of Deutsch, which means German. But it's at least as likely that it had to do with what the word Dutch meant at that time. In 18th and 19th century English, Dutch was used to refer to the whole broad Germanic region, encompassing modern-day Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, Austria, and Switzerland. At the time the Pennsylvania Dutch left Europe, Germany as we think of it didn't actually exist. It was an amorphous mass of duchies, kingdoms, and smaller states. Let me throw a surprise third contender into the ring, Pennsylvania, Deitch. Deitch being the language of the community in question. Deitch closely resembles the dialect of the region of Germany known as the Palatinate. In fact, speakers of standard German can, for the most part, understand and communicate with speakers of Deitch. The name Pennsylvania Deitch was even promoted by the Pennsylvania Dutch in the 19th century as a way of distinguishing themselves both from the European Germans whom they left behind, whom they called Deutschlanders, and the later wave of German immigrants who became German-Americans. The language isn't confined to the German settlers' descendants. While most Amish and Old Order Mennonites are of Swiss ancestry, nearly all speak Pennsylvania Deutsch. Like a lot of Maman Lotions, or mother languages, Deutsch is diminishing year over year, though the idea that it could go extinct 
is practically laughable to the Amish community. They've seen steady population growth since first arriving in America, and that means more speakers of Deutsch, at least around them. It's actually considered the fastest-growing small minority language in the United States, said Patrick Don Moyer, director of Kutztown University's Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center in Berks County. Among the Amish, the average age of a speaker of Pennsylvania Deutsch is 17. For the rest of the Deutsch speakers, the average age is 75. That's a number that Don Meyer and his colleagues would really like to see lowered. Two world wars certainly didn't help things. After fighting two world wars against Germany, the language, politely put, fell out of favor. People stopped speaking it and stopped teaching it to their children. It just wasn't really in fashion to be speaking German, any kind of German, in the United States anymore. Now, before I proceed to the next section, I would like to go on record as saying, I cannot be held liable for the added cost or calories that you may incur at the grocery store or drive through after listening. You've been warned, people. Now we get to talk about the thing that, to this reporter's mind, is the Pennsylvania Dutch's real claim to fame, the food. As you might expect from agrarian people in an area where winters can be quite a bother, Pennsylvania Dutch food is usually hearty and filling. The cuisine often mixes sweet and savory or sweet and sour all in the same dish, under the rubric that seven sweets and seven sours should be represented. The traditional sweets are primarily locally grown fruit. Apple, quince, berries, candied watermelon rind, sounds really nice. The sours come from pickled vegetables, onions, beets, cauliflower, tomatoes, cucumbers, of course, and one dish that we'll talk about in a minute. The New World native corn comes up in their cuisine a lot, in cereal, as filler for meat products, in fish cakes, omelets and waffles, even desserts and baked goods. There's no neglecting the humble potato, though, which could show up as potato cakes, potato biscuits, even potato bread. Suits me down to the ground. The Pennsylvania Dutch also gave us the criminally underrated spread, apple butter. For those who must sadly live in places where that's not a thing, Imagine taking applesauce, like, like really good applesauce, and cooking it down slowly until all the sugars are caramelized and the color is a rich brown. Friggin' love apple butter. You can do the same thing with lots of fruit, actually. We did it with some peaches when they were in season. So give it a go next time you overbuy produce in a fit of good intentions. Oh, and try it Pennsylvania Dutch style. On top of some cottage cheese. Meat in the Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine reflect traditions of frugality and economy. Next time you're at the store, and it really doesn't matter where in the U.S. you are, look near the sausages for a brick or cube of gray. Well, really just gray. That's scrapple, a blend of pork and spices stretched out with grains like corn or oats. It's kind of similar to geta or liver mush if you've ever had either of those. Pigs play a starring role in the culinary pageant that is Pennsylvania Dutch food, from glazed hams right down to the trotters. My German grandfather, I'm told, would eat pickled pig's feet right out of the jar. I never met the man, so I'll forestall an opinion there. Different strokes for different folks. If you've ever wanted to try authentic Scottish haggis but are nowhere near authentic Scotland, hit the turnpike and get you some hogmaw. Traditionally served in the winter, a.k.a. 
hog butchering time, hog maw is traditionally stuffed with diced potatoes, onions, sausage or scrapple, and lots of herbs, maybe even some vegetables like carrots and cabbage. The mixture is then stuffed into a clean pig stomach, and the ends are sewn shut before baking it until brown and crisp on the outside. Served sliced for those who enjoy the taste and texture of the crisp skin, or scoop out the stuffing and serve it on its own. And for those who are feeling queasy over the use of the stomach here, what do you think natural casing on sausages and hot dogs are? Takes a lot of guts, that's all I'm saying. What will we have on the side? How about some egg noodles, the clearly superior representation of slightly curly flat pasta? Egg noodles have a particular association with the Pennsylvania Dutch, such as in the dish Haluski, a dish of cooked egg noodles tossed with cabbage and onion that have been fried in butter. Some recipes add bacon, some kielbasa, some toss the noodles in butter with cottage cheese, and they all sound fabulous if you ask me. You could call this a vital cuisine, the ancestral food that many people in the region treasure as a link back to both their American and European ancestry. Most of these old-timey foods were associated with the agricultural calendar. People in the region, whether they adhere to the conservative culture of the Amish or Mennonite, or are simply Americans of Pennsylvania-German descent, follow these traditions in their home kitchens on a regular basis. At the same time, the colorful region is a popular tourist destination. But if you go, please remember, those are people, that's their home. Observe Wheaton's Law at all times. Pennsylvania Dutch culture is rich in folk traditions and the food right along with it. Like the Waldmop, a dwarf who lives in the woods and is considered Lord of the Beasts because he's a protector of the woods and their inhabitants. It was customary to leave him antler-shaped cookies on Old Fasnach, the day before Fasnach or Fat Tuesday, the beginning of Lent. The idea was to show him appreciation and the hope that in return, he would help to guarantee a good harvest. Another traditional bread was made for Bean Day, which was observed on June 4th or 5th, depending on where you lived. Made from black beans and resembling rye bread, this bread serves as a reminder that Bean Day was a critical planting time for pole beans and lima beans and things. If gardeners wanted to see a crop of seed for next year's planting, they'd have to get their beans in the ground by this date lest an early frost kill off the crop before they could harvest. There are things that are familiar, but different enough to cause some confusion. Take chicken pot pie, for example. In the Pennsylvania Dutch tradition, it's more like a bowl of southern chicken and dumpling soup with fat noodles instead of crust. Now me, I do my pot pies with a pastry crust on top and a fluffy dumpling dough on the bottom, which is probably why I'm perennially plump. And the way I see it, I'm not behind on my beach body. I'm well ahead of the game for my Christmas holiday body. If you order a scoop of pink ice cream in Lancaster expecting it to be strawberry, you may be surprised when it tastes like wintergreen mint because it's actually tea berry. Their chicken and waffles are served exclusively with chicken gravy. No maple syrup or hot sauce here. While I can't cover all of Pennsylvania Dutch cooking and baking here, and don't think I wasn't tempted, here are some of the dishes that you definitely should know about. Let's start with baked goods. To paraphrase Wayne on Letterkenny, even at the risk of painting with a broad brush, damn can they bake. Every single one of them, boy. 
The crowning glory of Pennsylvania Dutch cooking is certainly its wide range of cakes, pies, and other baked goods. A wide range of grains other than traditional wheat flour are likely to be used, as are lots and lots of spices, just like in savory dishes. One dish I have a personal connection with, because I made it for a middle school project, is funeral pie. I ended up taking both whole pies home with me that afternoon, minus the piece I ate, because I assume everybody was just put off by the name, because nobody touched it. Little had I known at age 11, it's also called raisin pie or rosina. Oh well, their loss. Of course, it also could have been the fact that funeral pies have a raisin filling, and there are so many poor souls in our world who don't like raisins. Funeral pie has both a bottom and top crust, and the filling is made of raisins, orange juice, walnuts, and lots of spices. It sounds a lot like a mincemeat pie, without which a British Christmas is a disappointing affair. At least based on the mass-market, prepackaged, factory-formed ones a friend brought me from Old Blighty a few years back. Funeral pie, as the name suggests, was and is traditionally served at funerals. And I've always suspected maybe there was a connection between the color of the raisins and the color traditional to mourning in Western cultures. But there is no evidence of that. My other unfounded theory hinges on the fact that the areas the Pennsylvania Dutch live in also tend to be coal mining areas, and where there are mines, people will inevitably lose loved ones in accidents and cave-ins. And maybe the raisins were meant to symbolize lumps of coal. Again, absolutely spitballing here, basically wasting your time. Speaking of wasting time, you know what we could do? About 3,000 people listen to a new Your Brain on Facts episode when it drops, which blows my mind every time I think about it. We should try to get funeral pie trending on social media the way that funeral potatoes, basically cheesy hash brown casserole, were trending a couple of years ago. So who likes to bake? Hit me up on the social media, Facebook and Instagram.com, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. Now, if you've never heard of funeral pie, you've probably at least heard of shoe fly pie, even if you're not 100% sure what that actually is. According to historian William Moyes Weaver, shoe fly pies started life as a crustless molasses cake, or a centennial cake, originally created in 1876 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence 90 miles to the east in Philadelphia. It's believed shoe fly pie was a variation of British treacle tart, as American cooks often used molasses, a cheap byproduct of sugar refining, in place of things like treacle. Later, refined sugar became more affordable and overtook treacle as a sweetener. But molasses's popularity maintained. Cheap to make, shoe fly pie was actually often served for breakfast, or maybe a snack in the field with coffee. The absence of eggs leads historians to conclude that shoe fly pie was intended as a winter dish, since hens stop laying in the cold, dark winter, or at least they will do without electric lights and heat. A pie without eggs also has a longer shelf life, cutting down on waste and what did we say earlier about frugality? But why is it called shoe fly? The dominant theory is that this sweet pie attracts flies, requiring vigilance from the baker to keep them off it. Shoe fly! However, Weaver has an interesting alternate theory that the name shoe fly comes from Shoe Fly the Boxing Mule, a popular traveling circus act in the region at the time. 
Shoofly was trained to stand on his hind legs and wear boxing gloves on his front hooves to box a horse. He was so popular and beloved that products were named in his honor, including a brand of molasses. It's all coming together. Let me show you my wall of red string. The pugilistic pack animal may have gotten his name from a popular song, Shoe Fly, Don't Bother Me. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is brought to you by Military True Crime Addict, a podcast focusing on true life events of military personnel, veterans, and those associated with the military. Give a voice to the victims and hear their side of the story. Raise awareness of the heinous crimes and support those most impacted. Military True Crime Addict is available wherever you get your podcasts. And you don't need to know anything about the military to listen. Now, back to the show. Let's go back to savories and sours before I make us all fat. Chow chow is a quintessential Pennsylvania Dutch dish, a sweet and sour mix of pickled vegetables often served as a side, and it takes only a sprinkling of imagination to know how beautifully that would pair with a fatty slice of ham or some other rich pork dish. Chow chow exalts the frugality of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Being a chopped or diced vegetable preparation, It can be made from odds and ends, bits and bods left over from preparing other food for eating or storage, earning it the nickname end-of-season relish. While the true origin of the name isn't officially known, there are some theories, one being that it comes from the French word for cabbage or choux, or choux-fleur, French for cauliflower, which is also a term of endearment usually used for little kids. Others surmise it may be related to Indian squash, chayote, which is also called chow chow. If you're familiar with British piccalilli, an anglicized form of Indian pickles, you have a good foundation of knowledge already when it comes to chow chow. Bonus recipe time! If you find yourself with some chow chow, say from a local farmer's market, or some piccalilli or some such, put two good big dollops of that into one can of crushed tomatoes with four chicken thighs in your crock pot. Season with salt and pepper and let it do. Shred the chicken, serve over rice with some of the sauce, and you're welcome. We call it pickle curry for lack of a better name. From Chow Chow, we move to powwow, but not the powwow you're thinking. A Native American powwow is a gathering of great traditional and cultural meaning, which gets its name from the Narragansett word for spiritual leader or he dreams. 
How that term came to apply to tribes all across the continent, I'm just going to put down to the usual cause, white people. The Pennsylvania Dutch powwow is a whole different thing. Not 100% different necessarily, since both are traditional and mystical. Pennsylvania Dutch powwow, also called brush or brashray, is a magical practice used for healing. An early form of the word powwow was borrowed from the Algonquin language family by 17th century missionaries in New England, where it originally described a healer derived from a verb implying to be in a trance-like state or dreaming for divination or healing purposes. People who practiced powwowing were often women who used prayer as well as locally accepted folk remedies. Because these were individualized prayers and not rote incantations, the practice was seen as acceptable among even the most devout Christians and was popular into the 1940s. Treatment may have been personalized, but there were still rules that needed to be followed. No powwower was ever to reveal the name of the person who had asked for their help, and it's verboten to accept payment for the work. Powwow could be used to cure warts, heal burns, cure diseases in livestock, and protect people and their homes from harm. If that's not enough for you, powwow can do things like prevent theft or even compel a thief to return the stolen goods. The practice of powwow actually incorporates well with the Pennsylvania Dutch practice of Christianity, rather than either of them being anathema to the other. I love that word, anathema. So fancy. Point of fact, a successful healing through powwow, which is both a noun and a verb, as in to powwow someone, is actually viewed as confirmation of God's power or mercy. Here's an example. To treat a fever, turn your shirt inside out for three mornings in a row. As you do, say, Turn thou shirt, and fever likewise turn. I tell thee this in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. After the third day, your fever will be smited. Smote? It's not smitten, I know that. Or to staunch bleeding, Breathe upon the injured person three times and recite the Lord's Prayer, but only the first few lines, stopping when you get to On the Earth. Cliff Notes version, I guess. Powwow uses a lot of herbalism in its practices, which only makes sense in an agrarian community. To protect cattle, mix wormwood and other herbs with soil from your stable and some salt. Combine these in a fabric pouch and bury it under the threshold of your barn where the cattle enter and exit. But wait, there's more. This will keep them safe from both theft and disease. And then there are some spells that are... Well, they do catch the imagination. If you're going to court, write these words on a piece of paper and carry it in your pocket for a positive outcome. I appear before the house of the judge. Three dead men look out of the window. One having no tongue, the other having no lungs, and the third sick, blind, and dumb. Okay. Though powwow isn't as common as it once was, you can see reminders of it when driving through that part of the country, or even shopping at your local Amish furniture store. Amish is in big quotes right there, because a lot of people will slap the name Amish or Pennsylvania Dutch onto anything folksy like sturdy furniture, quilts, jam, as a blatant and shameless marketing tool when there were no Amish or Pennsylvania Dutch people involved anywhere in the process. 
If you've ever seen a barn or a house with a round decorative plaque above the door, you already know what I'm talking about. They're called hex signs, but not hex in the way that we would think of it. These designs aren't black magic against someone else, but white magic for the people who live there. The motifs are often animals, predominantly birds, in a distinct style of the region, but may also be geometric patterns not unlike a quilt or flowers. Barn paintings, usually in the form of stars in circles, began to appear on the landscape in the early 19th century, and were able to spread quickly in the coming decades when commercial ready-mixed paint became available. By the 1950s, commercialized hex signs aimed at the tourist market became fairly popular, and I would swear there was one at my house in the 1980s. Two schools of thought exist on the meaning of hex signs. One that they are talismans of magic, the other that they're just for pretty. But both schools recognize that there's sometimes superstition associated with certain hex sign themes. If you want to get your Martha Stewart on, even though she's Polish, and make your own hex sign, here are some symbols you might want to include. A star generally means good luck, though a triple star specifically means to bring prosperity. Waves or a wavy border bring smooth sailing in life. An oak leaf is strength, or a maple leaf brings contentment. An eagle for courage, or a dove for peace. A trio of tulips stands for faith, hope, and charity. Very similar to the naming theme my mother wanted to use for us. She did manage to get in a hope and a mercy. Where there is good or white magic, though, there will inevitably be black magic. We are not going to debate today whether magic is real. If a person believes something to be real, that gives it power. Think of it like the placebo effect, which demonstrates the powerful effect the mind can have over the body. If you think you've never experienced it, think about the last time you took some aspirin for a headache. How fast did you feel better? I'd bet a day's wages you felt better in rather less than the 30 to 45 minutes it actually takes the medicine to proliferate and perfuse through your person. Around Thanksgiving in 1928, not Halloween as is often assumed or reported, a man and two teenage boys fatally attacked a farmer late one night in a remote southeastern York County Valley. Ray Myers Hollow. The name was named for the man whose house stood there, Nelson Ray Meyer, who, if his assailants were to be believed, had cast spells on them and their families. Ray Meyer, a farmer by trade, naturally, was married but estranged from his wife and lived alone. He was reclusive, eccentric, and believed to be a powwower. Things had not been going well either in the life of John Blimer. His wife had left him, two of his three children had died, he couldn't hold on to a job, and he found himself committed to a mental institution, not a super great place to be a hundred years ago. He believed evil spirits were pursuing him and that all of his suffering came from being cursed. Blimer consulted a woman identified in sources as a witch who pointed to Nelson Raymeyer as the culprit behind Blimer's bad luck. She instructed him to get into Raymeyer's house and retrieve a lock of hair and Raymeyer's spell book, Long Lost Friend. This collection of charms, folk remedies, spells, and talismans is a key text in powwow, and it's actually still in print today. Blimer wasn't about to go after Raymeyer alone. 
I can't say how Blimer was acquainted with his accomplices or how he talked them into it, but he went in flanked by Wilbert Hess, 18, and John Curry, who was only 14 at the time of the murder. We do know that Hess's family was going through a bad streak, and Raymire was as good a cause for that as any. They had to get that lock of hair and book and bury them six feet deep to break the spell. Easy enough, get in, get out, grab a shovel. So what happened that evening down in the hollow? There was a struggle, and the trio tied up the farmer, beat him to death, and tried to burn the house down. Raymire's body was discovered the next day when neighbors noticed his animals were agitated and hadn't been cared for. A small town means a small suspect pool, so it wasn't long before Blimer, Hess, and Curry were arrested and put on trial. If the judge wanted to keep witchcraft out of the courtroom, he must have been sorely disappointed. In testimony, the role of witchcraft, spells, and the like came up over and over again. Journalists from all over covered the trial, and this trial, with those elements of witchcraft, made international news. It's no mean feat in 1928. All three were convicted and given life sentences. But life in prison doesn't mean your actual natural life in most cases, and all three were released after serving their sentences. John Curry, the youngest defendant, was able to turn his life around, and his artistic skill actually earned him a spot as a cartographer on Eisenhower's staff during World War II, and his paintings still hang in some York County houses today. And if this story sounds at all familiar, it could be because you've seen the 1988 Donald Sutherland film, Apprentice to Murder, where he plays a powwower. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Now, if I didn't have an intro, that means I also don't have an outro. So I'll remind you that you can hang out and share cool facts with fellow Brainiacs on the subreddit or in the Facebook group. Just go to yourbrainonfacts.com social to click through. You can also wear your brainy heart on your sleeve by going to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. And remember, I still want to hear from you what your favorite or most memorable fact from the show has been. I've had a lot of facts, but I haven't had a lot of suggestions yet. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.